Take your seats, movie fans. The film is about to start. Welcome to Crafted Services, the show where we look at the bad films of cinematic history, the movies that critics rejected, but audiences embraced. I'm your host, Aaron Coker. I'm also the host of the Just Enough Trope podcast and the Enterprising Individuals podcast on this, the Just Enough Trope network. You can find out more at justenoughtrope.com. I'm joined as a... I'm joined in this episode by Noel Thingville. Noel is a blogger, podcaster, and critic who shares his views on film and pop culture entertainment on a variety of platforms, one of which is Schumacast, a podcast journey through the films of Joel Schumacher. Noel, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. We actually just recorded a new Schumacast earlier today. Oh, good. <laughs> so you're all warmed up and ready to go then. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, it's great to have you here. Uh, we were on a panel together at this year's Convergence Convention yeah. in the Twin Cities, and the panel was about film sequels that surpassed their predecessors in quality or achievement. I don't know about you, but I always walk away from a panel and like 10 minutes later, I think, oh, damn it, I should have said this or oh, mm -hmm. what I should have said this. Uh it's like L'Esprit de l'Escalier, uh, but to like the, the, the spirit of the hallway, maybe. Uh, yeah, yeah. Did you did you think of any other good examples after the panel? No, I did perfectly, and I was totally en enraptured with myself. No, <laughs> sure. no yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but I know it's like every single panel I did that y this this year, I would walk away and I'd be like, oh, man, we had this and this and this to bring up. Yeah, yeah. It's and you know we had an hour, so I think we were yeah. fairly comprehensive. But it's interesting how sequels sometimes go in another uh, better direction for a film or a franchise. Um, something that you have an idea for, and this has got to be a movie, and then that idea sparks a different idea, and yeah. then sort of like a refinement of of the concept in the first place. Yeah, it's I think so many people, they, they kind of get locked in the idea of, well, the original did such a good job. How could you possibly top it? Well, one, you don't need to top it Two, you just need to find an interesting new thing to take that direction. in. Right. And the, the usual like the bad sequel formula is the first one, but more just more. Of yeah, that. more, but less well. Yeah, but not not as good. Uh, yeah, and you didn't get the director back because you didn't want to pay him. I often find that a lot of video game sequels uh, tend mm. to improve as they go on. Um, you'll get a game that is like introduces some new mechanic or some new setting that's very interesting. And then in that second game in the franchise, they've really refined it now to a yeah. point where it's great. Like, you know, uh, Tomb Raider 2, Resident Evil 2, Assassin's Creed 2 all really improved on their original formulas. Yeah, I am, I'm not a gamer, so I don't have any thoughts. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, Super Mario Brothers three. Let let's let's give it to the wizard. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> uh, maybe if there's an Assassin's Creed two film, they'll get it right finally. Ooh, Who knows? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Video game movies have not really picked up on that. Yeah, uh, and we haven't really uh, approached that on the show yet. This show, mostly because the premise of the show is that here's a movie that isn't as bad as you think. And a lot of video game movies are as bad as you think. Uh, they do, don't necessarily succeed or fly as films when, you know, they could have been really great as video games. I mean, I'd almost argue Silent Hill, but I think that was actually pretty well received initially. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Street Fighter the movie is, if you look at it as a camp comedy, it is fantastic. Oh, yeah. And as just, it, it's the... It's the crux of like so many different stories as well. Of course, it's Raul Julia's last film. Yeah, it's uh, veteran, you know, legendary screenwriter Stephen E. D'Souza's uh, directorial uh, debut. Yes. And then it's also like the last time that anybody took Jean Claude Van Damme all that seriously. Until he did JCVD. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Until he uh, had his revolution uh, playing yeah, himself. Yeah. 
Um, but I mean, it's like that. That's one of those movies where it's like I can imagine being thrown off. But once you get to the Zongief versus E Honda kaiju battle in the Model City, I <laughs> yes. think the film has told you what it is. Yeah, it knows. You either uh, go with it or you don't. It knows what it is at that point. Yeah. Uh, it's not afraid to to go there. Uh, you know, speaking of a director who's not always afraid to go there, you got Schumacast. Yes. Why Why are you doing Schumacast? What's your reason for it? Part of it was is that Joel. Joel Schumacher is one of those filmmakers that you mention his name, everyone instantly thinks of the Batman movies. <laughs> and he was one of those, I sat down and I looked through and it's like, you know, all the other Joel Schumacher films I had seen, I really enjoyed. He has a lot of variety to his career. And those yeah. are really the only two movies he made that are like that. And yet everyone, that everyone just defines his career by them, probably because they were the biggest spectacle media event films that he's done and yeah. i also i had just not seen a lot of his work so a lot of it was just being curious about this guy's career and wanting to learn more and having done the series now where we've gone through all of his stuff in the 70s as a designer and a screenwriter we've yeah. gone through his whole rise in the 80s we're right in the middle of the 90s like we're, we're literally right between the two batman movies we just did a time to kill <laughs> okay all right <laughs> um so it's like just i i'm i'm now a fan of joel schumacher that's cool. I think that he's not one of my favorite directors, yeah. but I would describe him um, positively and I guess maybe um, with faint praise as solid. But I'd also describe him as earnest. I think that he makes yes. his films earnestly and rarely cynically. And that is, I think, uh, a really important uh, quality to his work. Right. I've been through, I want to say, 15, 16 of his films right now, and there's only wow. three I haven't enjoyed. Well, okay. And 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 I like also that he's a filmmaker who intentionally wants like each each film to be completely different than the film he did before. He wants to try dip his toes into every single genre he can and yeah, experiment yeah. with lots of techniques and styles and tones. And I mean, like you look at like the 80s where it's like St. Elmo's Fire followed by Lost Boys, followed by Cousins, followed yeah. by Flatliners, followed by Dying Young. You know? Yeah. Don't forget the incredible shrinking woman. Incredible Shrinking Woman, absolutely. <laughs> yes. Which... which he followed with DC Cab. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't uh, old enough to follow a, a filmmaker back then yeah. uh, as a director, but I remember being uh, very impressed uh, as a child by Shrinking Woman, but I didn't follow him to DC Cab after that. Well, and then even just even during the 70s that this... White oh yeah, I love man, the Wiz. This white gay man from New York became one of the prominent screenwriters of films yeah. in the black community with Car Wash Sparkle and The Wiz. Yeah, yeah. That's something else. He's also somebody who's he's been openly gay throughout his entire career. Yes. And there's certainly some of his work that relates to LGBTQ themes. Yeah. But I think it's a tragedy that Hollywood and I guess the general public took so long to accept gay actors and stories. He could have been like the premier a gay writer and director of his time. Right. Well, and I, I feel that some of the some of the queer camp of the Batman films. Yeah. did open itself up to a lot of homophobic attacks. And, you that's know, like, true. I mean, honestly, all the focus on the nipples. And it's like, honestly, you watch those films and it's like, that's that's like the last thing you notice given everything else that's happening in them. Yeah. You know, and, and yeah, it's silly, the butt shots and all that stuff. But, like, <laughs> yeah. but he's just pointing out something exactly. that's there. He's just saying that, exactly. you know, the emperor does have nipples on his bath suit. Exactly. And <laughs> and that's where I'm going to be curious getting to uh, Flawless, which is yeah. one of the films that he, that he did right after 8mm, which I have not yet seen. I'm, and, and he wrote that too. It's one mm -hmm. of the films to be returned as a screenwriter for. 
Well, people can look forward to that. Shroomcast is not your only podcast uh, right. or outlet for media criticism. And I think that we have a lot in common in that. We're both up to our necks in a lot of internet pop culture commentary. Yeah, the problem is I currently am working 11 to 12 hour work days. So it's like my editing <laughs> okay, has dropped help. way off. Yeah, that doesn't <laughs> help either. I was yeah. thinking the other day about how there's that idea, at least there used to be of, you know, comic books and video games are for kids. Well, you like cartoons. When are you going to grow out of that? And I'm glad that I never did. Sorry, mom and dad. But now oh, I yeah. talk about comic books and movies for a living. Oh, yeah. And it's not just people like you and me. You know, quote unquote, nerdy culture is, I think, the dominant form of pop culture now, at least monetarily. And I think in a lot of ways, it's hard to explain what changed outside of Hollywood getting its hands on a wealth of stories and characters that you and I know are, are worth mm -hmm. people's time, like comic stories. This period of pop culture feels unprecedented in just being openly geek. Yeah, I think I think it's just that we've reopened the floodgates to imagination. Interesting. And unfortunately, that's also led to a, a backlash of people who were like, I use that imagination as my shield. How dare you in, in, embrace my fantasy as your own, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And other people are like, hey, let's go share in the wonderment, you know, and yeah, I think part yeah. of that's, you know, been the technology, the budgets and all that stuff have allowed you to do films that can literally do things that you had never seen before. Yeah. Yeah. I like that idea of it's like, hey, my identity is an outsider. And now like dudes are like, yeah, Captain America. Awesome. And I don't just mean like the spectacle of all the superhero stuff and, you know, giant battle scenes, all stuff, but even more intimate stuff like the Planet of the Apes films, which is the technology that's used for you know, bringing those characters to life. Sure. You know, or the, the de-aging technology that's being experimented on in various films, like <laughs> yeah. you know, Scorsese's The Irishman coming up. Right. Yeah. We get a whole getting... bunch of old actors to tell a multi-generational story. They're all they getting Nick Furyed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that like when Westerns were popular, these other fads or when you think of like the, the heyday of the 80s action film, I mean, there were definitely nerds for those genres. Yep. Um, somebody was like, you know, actually, uh, Louis L'Amour frequently employed science fiction and fantasy elements in his stories. Mm -hmm. I know that like horror, uh, horror for sure has a nerdy following, but it's like the people that the 80s and 90s films uh, couldn't get enough of making fun of, you know, quote unquote nerds. Mm -hmm. Their interests now dominate popular culture. It's like this, it's like a nostalgic return, but like an inverted nostalgic return. It'd be like if Westerns came back, but they were all about Indians fighting off cowboys now. Yes. I want that niche. Yeah. We've had a couple movies like that. People exploring yeah. like, all right, so yeah, once John Wayne takes off, like what's what's going on? What do the the Native Americans think about that? Well, and I think film films was a very different experience back in the day where you would only go to the theater and catch what was playing, not really even looking at what was playing ahead of time. So yeah. you could have a lot of films that were very repetitive. You go back and look at westerns right, right now and you'll see you'll see like they just kept making the same film over and over and over and over and over again. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. back then the audiences weren't just going to watch every western every week. They would just catch one every now and then. Same with monster movies in the 50s and stuff like oh, that. Oh, yeah, you know? yeah. Hammer Horror is literally the same film every time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. And Godzilla's fighting a different monster, so it's a different movie. What mm -hmm. do you want? Exactly. Uh, you got kids. Uh, the kids of that time turned into adults uh, and have never left the pop culture conversation like mm -hmm. they might have earlier. It's hard to pinpoint a cause of that. It might be the changing face of media, like in the new century. And the Internet has to have something to do with it. I mean, wh what do you think? Why do you think we're at this point where you've got 50 year olds who are ex as excited about a movie as 15 year olds? Uh, well, I think consumerism has changed where you hoard you, you basically you hoard and you can you fill your entire house with the media that you loved when you were younger 
Sure. So it's like you really enjoyed a TV show. You buy yeah. it on video. You you or you buy like the videotape compilations, and then when you get a little older, they release a new DVD set, and now it's available on streaming, complete with a new reboot. You know. Yeah. Right. Instead of just having the uh, the coonskin cap for you know for Davy Crockett films, exactly. now you've got all the action figures, the Hulk hands, and all the Blu-ray right. sets. And yeah. I mean, yeah. like in the fifties, if you were like a sci-fi kid growing up with Tom Corbett's Space Cadet, you know, yeah. you you would have tuned in every single day and watched it. But they never reran it, so you could never go back and rewatch it ever again. And the majority of that show has been wiped and no longer exists. So yeah. you can't show it to your kids. You can't show it to your grandkids. You know, there was that whole era of lost media. Oh, yeah. You know, and and now it's like we're trying to create. We had this period there from like the '80s to the early 2000s where it's like let's get as much of it physically printed out as we can, almost an archiving of of all media. Yeah. And now it's switching to streaming, which has the the double-edged sword of one, everything can be found somewhere else. But on the other hand, it can be shut off at any time. And we're also starting to see fracturing of streaming sites and all that stuff. So it's like everyone is just building these personal collections of everything that they've ever touched growing up, you know? Yeah. And people's reactions to things that they can access now or access again after they accessed it previously when they were yeah. a kid uh, affects the overall perception of uh, properties. It's something we talk exactly. about a lot on this show. Um, the development of technology and cinema, of course, had a profound effect on the animated feature as well. We're all very familiar now with CGI animation in Disney blockbusters, and I think traditionally animated films have become something of a novelty. But at the turn of the century, uh, the part where this movie came out that we're going to talk about, things were still in flux. Uh, were you a fan of Disney animated films growing up? Oh, sure. I mean, they've always just been a part of my life, I think. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if Little Mermaid might have been one of the first films I ever saw in a theater. Oh, okay. Okay, sure. Um, I I can't I can't say that for certain, but it's one of the, the earliest ones I remember. Yeah. And that was like right before Batmania, too. And, of course, I saw Batman, so. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> I would have been, Which... and I, I would have been, like, that was like 89, so I would have been seven, so. Yeah, speaking of things that probably kicked yeah. this whole thing off, yeah, for sure. Well, the name of this show is Craft to Services. Uh, on every episode of the podcast, we look at a film that's poorly rated, generally lower than 50% on Rotten Tomatoes, but one that's well-remembered by audiences at large or by specific fans. And today's film is one of those that has been seemingly forgotten, but by all but diehard fans. Uh, it represented something of a departure for Disney animation in that it blended traditional animation techniques with digitally generated imagery while presenting a non-musical action film aimed at somewhat older audiences, all while paying homage to the classic Disney adventure movies of the 50s and 60s. I'm talking, of course, about the 2001 animated feature Atlantis, The Lost Empire, starring Michael J. Fox as Milo Thatch, the descendant of a famous explorer who has a crazy theory about the existence of Atlantis that just might be true and the adventure that he goes on with a motley cast of characters to discover the secret of the Shepherd's Journal. And as you were saying uh, before, you were a fan of Disney animation growing up. What about anime? Were you interested in oh, that? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, because I want to say right around the turn in 1990, I discovered Robotech. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. also, I had a number of local video rental stores that started carrying a lot of anime. And so, yeah, early to mid-90s, I was just consuming so much anime. It's interesting that you hear about... Um, or you can just read about like the history of anime kind of coming to these shores. And a lot of the companies that were responsible for that are 
gone now yeah. or just absorbed that you know they had this heyday in seeing the potential of getting uh japanese animation yeah. and stories and characters over here exploited it but then i don't know mismanaged it or something sort of well i i mean one of the people that i would love to do a history on sometime is is streamline entertainment who yeah that was carl masek's company that he formed coming out of robotech yeah uh where they were the ones who would not only take films on theatrical tours they, they wouldn't release them wide but they would just kind of like go on these tours they were the ones who put a cure in theaters yeah they put Vampire Hunter D in theaters. They had Robot Carnival in theaters. They were the ones who struck the deal with Sci-Fi Channel to do those kind of annual anime marathons that Sci-Fi would run on the weekends. Yeah. Where you would get Robot Carnival, uh, we, you know, uh, Vampire Hunter D, Galaxy Express 999, uh, all the all these really great, rich anime movies. And then I think that carried on with the early years of Cartoon Network. They would do their their uh, every annual anime marathon. And Streamline, its big thing is that they they died because of the rise of the DVD format, which did not, all these other companies suddenly shot up and, and they kind of got left in the dust. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that, uh, you know, a change in tastes can help a company and then a right. change in technology can, uh, wipe them out in the same. Story. Exactly. Well, and they always focused on film and, and refused to do TV series because of the length of them because <laughs> yeah. of videotape releases right. and they were dub only. Yeah, right, right, right. And and then so by the time that DVD came along, suddenly you can very affordably release these TV box sets, or I say affordably like $170 a season. Well, not um, for a customer, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh but but also then subtitle came into into play and you started to get the the puritanism of the anime community of and it's like <laughs> which, which is the more faithful adaptation and now it's like yeah. the fan subs are considered more faithful than the official subs and right, you yeah. know and and Carl Mesa kind of got lauded for the fact that he only did dub only even though doing that was directly responsible for making these accessible for a broader mainstream audience yeah and uh, taking something taking you know completely different uh series and rewriting them through the dub yes. to make them you know another property yeah yes thank you for attending my ted talk yeah uh, thank you for attending my ted talk uh i want to tell you about iceland and ireland later too yeah. yes uh i was a big time fan of disney films in the 90s mm -hmm. kind of in spite of myself i was definitely at a time where i wasn't really interested in kids stuff but it, the quality was so strong uh, especially in the early to mid 90s i think hercules is where i started to fall off I remember right. seeing Hunchback in Notre Dame and just loving it. I mean, even though it's it's a very flawed film, and I think yeah. it shows a lot of the problems, uh, the conflict that Disney was going through versus uh, more mature storytelling and singing gargoyles. And, yeah. I, you know, I was reading the trades at the time in the mags like Entertainment Weekly, and I remember learning that Hunchback was the first Disney animated feature in the 90s to not break $100 million, or at least squeak, squeak to $100 yeah. million. And the lesson Disney learned was, well, we're not doing that again. You know, it's going to be mostly musicals and talking animals from here and yet, on. And yet from that period, the late 90s into the early 2000s, there's a lot of experimentation of them trying all these yeah. things and not all of them succeeding, even though there are a lot of really interesting films that a lot of people look back fondly on, with the exception of Home on the Range. But Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Brother Bear. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, but we're looking at Atlantis today from 2001. Yeah. And of course, it was directed by the guys that directed Hunchback. So you're and still Beauty and the Beast. That's true. Yeah. It's it's funny because you look at the we'll talk about their careers going forward a little later. Yeah, but yeah. I, I don't think you get a lot of chances. Uh, you look at a guy like Andrew Stanton, who did so much for Pixar and then he does his big live action push. 
it doesn't really work out. And now he's like kind of directing TV. So yeah. you, it seems like you fall out really, really quickly of the animation business if you're not uh, providing. It's a shame because I love John Carter. Uh, you know what? I have come to that might appear on this show someday. I have come to love it myself. It, uh, it has its issues, but I, I I really like a lot of what it does. Yeah. But that is a discussion for another episode. That is. And it, yes, it is. What do you think of the current sort of era or crop of Disney animation? Um, I mean, they're not hurting for success. Frozen made like a billion and a quarter uh, dollars worldwide. I have not been keeping up. I, I, really? I've seen Tangled and I have not seen anything. Since. Uh, okay. Like I, I still haven't seen Wreck-It Ralph. Oh, <laughs> I, yeah. which I need to, I own a copy. I, again, I'm working 11 to 12 hour days. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah I have yeah. not seen frozen yet. Interesting. I have not seen, well, I think it's a Pixar movie, but I haven't seen brave. Like, yeah, I haven't yeah. even seen the latest run of Pixar movies. It's, it's been a few, I've, I've fallen a few years behind in Disney. Pixar seems to be, and you know, whether they are connected to Disney or not, you know, changes over the years, but they, uh, they seem to be immune, I think to that they always succeed sometimes they take real planes big, well they t- they take real big chances and then they have their kind of money films they're like we'll mm-hmm. do another cars uh get some more money and then we'll try an inside oh, yeah. out but then even something like inside out which is really re- weird when you think about it feelings yeah. have feelings uh you know does gangbusters yeah well why do you want to talk about atlantis the lost empire today specifically i think it's 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 the interesting tail end of there was this kind of resurgence of adventure movies in the nineties that mm-hmm. I think this was kind of coming right, right as that hump was starting to, to, to wind back down. Yeah. And, and also it is the first real cinematic portrayal of the Mike Mignola style of design <laughs> Yeah, that, yeah. that has since bled over. And of course the Hellboy movies and other works by del Toro and a lot of people trying to emulate that style. Yeah, it is uh, very, if you are a fan of Hellboy or his work, uh, it's very evident in the film. Yes. And I remember being very excited to see Atlantis specifically for that reason. Yeah. And I think it's, it's a film. It has its problems. I, I think there's reasons why it didn't, connect with certain audiences but i like it because it is disney trying a lot of different stuff aesthetic wise yeah as an adventure story it holds together fine it's fine it's a fine cast it's a fine enough plot it it, it breezes through way too fast but it's it's one of those ones where i think it's not so much that it's an original story but in the original way in which they chose to envision it that really makes it interesting yeah and there's stretches that i think are breathtaking Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, visually, certainly. There's, it's sort of the first, I think like the 2000s would show uh, a sort of a trend of science fiction animated films. You know, fantasy and talking animals uh, seems to be a safe bet usually. Uh, you know, Lilo and Stitch would come out, a Treasure Planet yes. would come out next year. Um, you know, you'd had Monsters, Inc. in uh, the same year as this. Uh, Titan AE was in 2000. Mm-hmm. Uh, Meet the Robinsons and Bolt would be later in the decade. Um, Mars Needs Moms, I guess. But maybe the less said about yeah. that, yeah. the better. Yeah. And out of those, only Monsters, Inc. is an unqualified success. It seems like sci-fi yeah. animation is is a hard sell. Yeah, I think in America, was, in America, I should say. Yeah. And I think this is a very comparable piece to Titan AE, where, again, it was Tom Bluth and Gary Goldman trying something very different mm-hmm. from what they usually did. And I, I think it's they're trying also to get an older audience. They're trying to aim something a little more aesthetically at teenagers and young adults. Yeah. And just because of the very brand that it's coming from, they're not grabbing those audiences. Yeah, it's that weird thing of we still think that pictures and cartoons are for kids yeah. because now they've 
got that audience with, ironically, uh, paper pictures, comic books turned mm-hmm. into live action films. They've got that PG-13 audience locked in now. But at the time, yeah, it just I, we kept I kept hearing rumors at that time of like, you know, they want to do an animated uh, John Carter and have it be cool. Or they want to do like a live action war movie that's more PG or PG-13. And Imagine a lot of those, Disney's Dunkirk. Yeah, right. A lot of yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, which is this is as close as we get to that, I think. Yeah. But none of that ever materialized because a lot of these projects just, in their opinion, underperformed and they weren't willing to pursue it. Yeah, I mean, like remember how they were trying to do this very, very dark, realistic historical drama involving the I, I believe it was the Incan or Aztec Empire, and they ev- eventually just gave up on it and folded all that art design into Emperor's New Groove. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> Yeah, which it's is not a criticism. I love which that is a movie. fine film. Yeah, it's but very it's funny. It's a very different movie than what they initially set out to make. Yeah, there's a what? What's the documentary on that called? Yeah, uh, I haven't seen it yet. In the sweat box or something like that. I think it's called. Definitely check that out. Uh, well, before we get started uh, properly, we're already kind of rolling. I want to no, it. I want to reiterate that we talk a lot about Rotten Tomatoes on this show, but this podcast is not in the pocket of Big Tomato. We don't endorse Rotten Tomatoes. We're just using it as a metric in this case. And as a pop culture commentator and a podcaster, what do you think about the popularity of aggregate review sites? I'm fine with them. I I think it can very easily become too much of a shorthand where Mm. it's like everything keeps devolving into yay or nay, yay or nay without (laughs) any of the nuance in between. Yeah, that's what criticism is all about, right? Yeah. I mean, it can be a nice way. I, I like going into Rotten Tomatoes and start looking deeper. Like, yeah. actually, let's start looking into the reviews that were yay or nay and kind of delve into them a little more deeply. Yeah. Um, for the most part, I don't mind it. I think it's still a flawed system because it's so easy to game, like have a whole bunch of people vote a ton of times on one thing. Right, right. You know, whenever a group gets angry about something, they all kind of dogpile on it. Captain Marvel, you know. Right. Yeah. And the platform, I'm not a defender of them as i've said the platform has done a lot yeah. i think or tried to do a lot to sort of uh, combat that but it still it still exists i mean it kind of gets to my broader views of social media is that social media is essentially still a reflection of society and a lot of the problems in society are just going to be reflected by the social media you know a lot <laughs> of the problems in the ways that we had have discourse and criticism of things is reflected by stuff like rotten tomatoes yeah social media has been developed to take advantage of those problems perhaps or, or it just got grabbed by them and ran off with it. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're talking about Atlantis, The Lost Empire. It was first released on June 15th of 2001. It's rated PG. It's the fourth Disney animated feature to be rated PG. Uh, the first was The Black Cauldron in 1985, followed by Nightmare Before Christmas and Dinosaur in 2000. It has a runtime of 95 minutes, uh, which is pretty long for a Disney animated feature, although it could have been much longer, and we'll talk about that in a second. The film was a modest success at the box office. It grossed $84 million in the U.S. at a total of 180 $6 million worldwide on a budget of $120 million. Certainly not a blockbuster and definitely not when you consider the advertising and promotional tie-ins and things that uh, Disney had arranged for the film. The film sits at 49% on Rotten Tomatoes. It has a 52 on Metacritic and a 6.9 out of 10 on IMDb. The film is directed by Gary Truesdale and Kirk Wise. Uh, they're frequent collaborators on Disney animated projects. Uh, we talked before about Beauty and the Beast and Hunchback of Notre Dame. And of course, they worked on Atlantis as well. Uh, after this movie did not succeed, uh, Truesdale eventually moved to DreamWorks Animation in 2003. Wise directed the English language translation of Spirited Away mm-hmm. uh, for the U.S. 
And that's kind of it for their major accomplishments. I don't think they yeah. directed anything major after this. It's one of those ones where you look at like an Oscar winning director and like within a couple films, their career just sputtered out. Yeah. You know, yeah. they did Beauty and the Beast, which yeah, is right. to this day considered like one of the peak pinnacles of Disney animation. Yeah. Kind of got this whole thing. This is why we're talking today is because of that. I film. know. Right. Yeah. Then followed it with Hunchback, which again was it's one of those. It's not a bad film. Not a bad film, but it's a very uneven film. And it's one of those ones where, again, the Disney sensibility and the source material are very, very misaligned. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You would question why you would even make an animated Disney version of Hunchback in the first place. And I think they got real close. But then there's, you know, singing gargoyles and stuff like that. So I mean, I'd love to see like a really twisty French animated version of Hunchback in Notre Dame. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe we'll see that someday. Uh, speaking of people who started off really high in the Oscar sort of environment and then kind of ended up in animation, I guess, uh, Tad Murphy did the main screenplay for the yep. film. His first work was on Gorillas in the Mist, which of course No, my was... best friend is a vampire. Oh, <laughs> so I was going to say, the first thing that anybody might care about, oh. but yeah, 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 he, my best friend is a vampire, uh, yes, was his first work. Uh, he went on to uh, work a lot for Disney, doing uh, Notre Dame, mm-hmm. uh, Tarzan, Atlantis, of course, Brother Bear. Then he moved to WB Animation yeah. and worked on some of their films. How do you feel about the WB animated films? And I'm talking like post-Timverse stuff. I don't watch them because there's so many of them and I've never known where to start. Yeah. Like I, I, the last DC animated film I've seen was Batman versus Mr. Freeze Sub-Zero. Oh, well, that is the, yeah, that's a good one. That's, um, yeah, that was, that was a very good film. But it, yeah, it's just, I, I, I watched all of the DC superhero stuff up till the start of Justice League. Okay. And then I fell out of it. You know, getting, getting talked to people, how they grow out of things and they eventually fall out of things. It's not that I disliked it. It's just I had so much going on that I kind of fell <laughs> yeah, off and they kept making so much of it that I never really knew when to jump back in. We got, well, I'll tell you, there is a clear yeah. dividing line uh, at the end of the Justice League Unlimited show mm-hmm. uh, where Deanie Tim, uh, of course, at that point, um, well, no, I destroyed Dwayne McDuffie was alive. Mm-hmm. McDuffie, uh, DeSantos, all those guys take off, and then you've just got a couple people left. Yeah. So we got to get a GoFundMe going so you can uh, quit your job and watch Justice <laughs> League because it's totally yeah. it's worth it. Yeah, and I've I've wanted to watch Young Justice, and I wanted to catch up on some of these other shows. Oh, like yeah, I did, sure, I did see the, I did see the majority of Teen Titans when that ran. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. but yeah, like I I even the more recent ones, like I haven't watched any of their adaptations that they've been doing of say Year One or Dark Knight or Dark Knight Returns or yeah. uh, I think they just did the Killing Joke. Yeah, those um, not not quite as good, but yeah. Though uh, I do see that trying. I did see that he was the writer on Year One. Yeah, yeah that's a pretty good prestige. Uh, one for Tad to get. And I, I do want it for Tad Murphy. Two two things. One, I do want to give a shout out to his directorial debut, Last of the Dogmen, which he did in the late 90s. Uh-huh. Very, very nice little quiet indie film. Tom Berenger, sheriff who finds out that there's this entire hidden tribe of Native Americans who cut themselves off from everywhere to keep their own culture going. Interesting. Um, and a very good film. And then I also read his unproduced draft of Star Blazers when Disney was going to produce a live action version of Star Blazers. Whoa. Live action, wow! It wasn't good. <laughs> it went. It was a lot like this. This his script for this one, where it's just a lot of cliches that you've seen in a lot of other movies. He has a lot of Star Wars and a lot of Independence Day in that script. Okay. And, okay. And it, it wasn't that it was bad. It was just we've seen all this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Maybe phone that one in a little yeah. bit. But yeah. 
And uh, I've never seen Brother Bear. That was, I think, where I dropped off. Was, yeah, that's... <laughs> like, I, I think Lilo and Stitch was my last big Disney movie. Okay, all right. And I love Lilo and Stitch. I didn't see Brother Bear either, mostly because, I, I don't know. I mean, it didn't it's look about a bear or something. Yeah, yeah. But, it's you know, an Eskimo who gets turned into a bear that he tried to kill. Judging a book by its cover. Yeah, I definitely have yeah. to go check that out, I guess. Uh, this, a lot of people worked on the story of this film. Uh, the, oh, God, yes. Yeah, the directors that we mentioned, uh, Bruce and Jackie Zabel, uh, who have also worked on other animated features, worked on it. Bryce Abel, I really like. He uh, he was the creator of Dark Skies, the TV series, yeah, and also yeah. was the head writer of the Crow TV series, Stairway to Heaven. Yeah, uh, the short-lived Crow show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, uh, Joss Whedon was involved uh, early on. Who's that on. guy? Yeah, I don't know. Um, you'll have to look him up. Yeah. Um, he said that uh, he was – I think he was one of the first people to work on the script – and he said that like nothing of his like is in the film. I would debate that, but we can get into it. Well, we can do it oh, right wait, now. Okay. One thing that I noticed about this movie is that it prominently features a, a, a how do I want to say it? A ragtag found family of pirates who make a heel turn and then a face turn and have among them a plucky young woman mechanic. Yeah. <laughs> Titan A.E., <laughs> is about a ragtag found family of space pirates who make a heel turn at, at like in the second act and a face turn in the third act and have among their crew members a plucky young female mechanic. Yeah. <laughs> Alien Resurrection, which he wrote the screenplay for, has at its core a ragtag found family of space pirates who make a heel turn and then make a face turn and have among their member a plucky young woman mechanic. <laughs> stop, and, stop drilling, you've hit Atlantis. And this all and this all culminates in Firefly a TV series about a ragtag found family of space pirates who frequently make, you know, heel and face turns against their clients and have among their member, a plucky young female mechanic. Right. Right. It's, uh, I think there's a bit of Josh showing. I think there is probably, yeah. He's just mad because he wanted to, you know, kill off uh, sweet in the third act or something like that. And, have some big twist uh yeah but i it's very very familiar elements there yeah although this has got fraser's dad though so that's that's yes good. this has fraser's dad <laughs> but I, I also find it funny though that joss's screenwriting debut was buffy the vampire slayer yeah. and tab murphy's screenwriting debut was my best friend is a vampire best friend is a vampire yeah i want Everyone that crossover <laughs> yes all the throw all the vampire movies together in a, in a big arena and see who walks Once out. Once bitten versus Buffy the vampires. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, with vampires kiss uh, as the oh. referee. Oh, just yeah, just bring Cage right into the middle of that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I love this film. Uh, I think it's a great premise. I, this execution is solid. There's a long two-hour documentary uh, on the making of the film you can find mm-hmm. on YouTube. And the filmmakers talk about their interesting inspirations. Um, I think that they were, at this point, definitely high uh, on the success of previous Disney animated films. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, how could you pitch, uh, we're going to base a movie on Adventureland, <laughs> of yeah. the uh, Disney park, but also like the 1950s Disney adventure movies like 2000 Leagues Under the Sea and Treasure Island. Uh, you know, apparently the original concept of the film was pirate related and mm-hmm. Milo was conceived as the descendant of uh, Blackbeard or oh, wow. um, the pirate Edward Teach. I think Teach became Thatch, you know, after that idea was scrapped. And the film was intended to open with a prologue featuring Vikings, you know, searching yes. for the uh, for Atlantis, uh, setting up this idea of this epic adventure, uh, which I think was seen as a, a a bridge or a longboat too far eventually, and they cut that out um, to replace it with the prologue that we did get. 
which is, I think it's a stronger idea. You have to care about who your characters are. We, we don't even see Kida until like an hour in, in the original cut. One of my arguments is though, I feel that kind of removes some of the mystery of it. Mm, okay. And, and it, 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 it makes it less, uh, a, less of an intrigue when you finally get to those characters later on. Like I, I actually really, I remember they released that opening deleted scene as a, as a, a teaser trailer. Yeah. Um, they, they initially said they, they even released it on the website saying this scene's going to be cut from the movie and the movie still hadn't even come out yet, <laughs> Interesting, but they okay. still wanted to put it out cause it was already fully animated. So they basically did it like a prequel short film. Yeah. Yeah. That's not um, a bad idea. Yeah. And I, I thought that one was so much more mysterious and, and kind of pulled you into the story more. And I agree. Yeah. It, the, the, the new one does give a little bit more of an emotional weight to the Atlantean story, but I think there's other problems involving the Atlantean story that. I think they, they kind of paint themselves into a corner in terms of not giving themselves enough breathing room to explore them. Yeah, they've talked about in that documentary, they talk about how they got so excited yeah. about the Jules Verne-ish elements um, that the travel to Atlantis where they're doing a journey to the center of the earth, basically. Mm -hmm. And it's just this parade of monsters and they're having fun with all the crazy Mignola designs. And then they realize like, well, we get, this is movies Atlantis. Like we got to get to Atlantis at some point. And so yeah. they cut a lot of that back, but we're still left with probably not enough Atlantis to be totally satisfying. Part of, part of my problem with the film is it, it moves at such a breakneck pace and yet it does slow down for some things that you didn't really need to slow down for. Like I think Milo at the, versus the professors at the museum goes on too long. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think it's a little too much of, hey, look at this incredible sub. Five minutes later, subs destroyed. Hey, we got these cool mini subs. Five minutes later, the mini subs are destroyed. Hey, we got this cool drilling machine. Five minutes later, you never see it again. You yeah. know, and it's like setting up this whole toy line of stuff that we then never just really do anything with. Right. And it's like so many stages of like, we hit this wall that we need the drilling machine to get through, but it doesn't work until Milo hits it with a wrench, just like he used the furnaces down in the, down in right, the basement. Right, because he knows boilers. Yeah, that's his exactly. mutant and, power. <laughs> and it's like, you don't really need to use it there if you can already apply that knowledge to him figuring out how to get the Atlantean equipment working, you know? Right, yeah, you know, yeah, you, yeah. It, it's one of those things where it's like, I, I really would wish they had just kind of spent a little more time uh, polishing up the storyline and, and, and how everything is moving because because it, it's just kind of like start stop start stop start stop start stop yeah do you remember the first time that you saw the film and your reaction to it yeah i did see this in theaters uh -huh. so i would have been around 19 or so when this came out sure. 1920 uh i pretty much thought of it as i do now it's it's something i enjoy it has problems and most of my problems are more just like structural narrative issues uh -huh. but i like a lot of the pieces that are there i like a lot of the the further you get into the movie that's when they you really get some of the good stuff coming yeah that's absolutely true i yeah. didn't see it in theaters i think it was because i was still uh burned off of uh, things yeah. like hercules but i was i remember i was um probably about the same as age as you, I was working uh, in a daycare for a summer and Disney is just like, that's what you give to kids. It doesn't matter what it's about. The people who are buying VHSs for the daycare don't care that it's a PG or slightly more mature than something else. Mm -hmm. And usually you just put things on to get the kids to go to sleep or whatever. But I remember it coming on and I just got so engrossed in it. And there's just so the dialogue and the patter and the character bits just come so fast and none of it is designed. I'm just looking at these kids and they don't get any of the jokes. Yeah. And I'm like, I love this movie, but like, who is this movie for? It's also yeah. a movie where 
hundreds of people die. <laughs> like there's just so oh, many on screen yeah. deaths. So uh, many deaths. Not, I, not. I think it's like by the half hour point. We've seen the entire crew of the submarine die. Yeah, not to not to mention the uh, prologue uh, that millions of people yeah. must have died in the collapse of Atlantis. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the <laughs> what do you think about the the idea of Atlantis? Do you do you believe in Atlantis or do you believe that there is uh, there is something there behind the myths? I mean, I think the the thing that's there is we've had cultures that have died. You know, yeah. I. I I'm personally of the belief that a lot of I, I can't even remember what the name of the island was, but we have that island in the Mediterranean where we do know that like it collapsed under a gigantic volcanic eruption. Yeah, and, Santorini. And, yeah, Santorini. I, I I believe that was very much a resource for that. But I mean, even other cultures around the world have you know collapses of civilizations. You know, even the great floods. We find out that you know the 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 Black Sea had a portion where a wall collapsed and all this water flew in you know i think a lot of mythologies can emerge from that because it is it is an incredibly affecting event to literally have a culture just swept away yeah and the people who would survive that would remember that and would spread that story and as the generations go on that story would grow in the retelling i mean even again look at the uh the the collapse of the empires in in the middle and south central and south america you know yeah how we just have these mysteries. We have these clues as to what they used to be, but there's still so much we don't know. Uh, it's certainly like a mystery. I, I think that, I think I read no, somewhere. No, I really think it was all aliens. You know? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> that's, <laughs> it's, it's funny because that is something that the, uh, the filmmakers uh, sort of reached to or looked at when they were putting yeah. the film together. They obviously looked to the works of Jules Verne, uh, you know, specifically a journey to the center uh, of the earth. Mm-hmm. And, they also apparently turned to the work of uh, Edgar Casey, who was an American mm. occultist and a self-styled clairvoyant who uh, was sometimes known as the sleeping prophet. Yep. And he had had these visions about Atlantis and they got the idea of the um, the crystals that provide energy uh, and fuel and healing is something that Casey believed, apparently. Yeah. And I'm one of those people who I don't feel like you have to believe something to get a good story out of it. And it's like, oh, yeah, this is definitely with all the crystals and the energy and the flowing feminine. It's like, do I believe that? No, but man, it's a good story. And it's like, did did someone else write Shakespeare's plays? I don't care, but it can make a good story out of it. (laughs) Maybe not Roland Emmerich, but someone can make a good story out of it. Yeah, right. Let's see Joel Schumacher tackle that. Yeah, actually. Yeah. (laughs) It also reminds me, there's a lot of tales of because this kind of you get the Atlantis here, but you also get like the hollow earth side of it. Uh, tales of, you know, creatures living inside the earth. I'm reminded of a, a book called The Coming Race by Edward bulwer Lighton, mm-hmm. um, which features a, a race called the Vril that live underground. And they, they also have like uh, crystals and energy uh, that they use for different applications. I mean, even getting into like the growth of myth of how that was just, it was a fun science fiction adventure fantasy. And then that got latched onto by groups who like turned it into this thing, <laughs> well, which yeah. led us to Nazis. So- <laughs> Uh, yeah, one thing leads yeah. to another uh, as far as that goes. Uh, it's yeah. it's interesting because stories I, I, grow in the telling in odd way and unexpected ways, <laughs> and sometimes in unwanted ways. Yeah, yes. I, I think it's great that they did reach outside of the typical, literally platonic idea yeah. of oh, it's columns and uh, you know it's oh. just like a Greek. Yeah, it's a Greek city that sank, and I like the fact that they studied Mayan architecture and art and Indian and Cambodian art as well. Um, it's, you know, you were saying, you know, you don't have to believe in a story for it to be real. Yeah. Uh, the force is totally real, though. I mean, we all know that. So are the midi-calorians. I know we don't want to admit it. But oh, well, that's something that we all have to deal with. We take our, our annual life. count. <laughs> yes. Mark Ockrand, who developed the Klingon and Vulcan languages for Star mm-hmm. Trek, created the Atlantean language. 
And it's always funny. I don't know how much you know about conlangs or constructed languages. I don't know much about them. But if you look at or read some of the work that he did, it's amazing the work that he put in. Of course, the idea behind the Atlantean language is that Mm -hmm. it's a precursor to, you know, all of Earth's languages or at least many of them. And so he actually went and looked at like the proto-Indo-European idea of languages and used these basic roots to create a language that could conceivably have led to other romance languages and so on and so forth. Which in the film, it just sounds like a bunch of like kind of gibberish. And yeah. then we get some subtitles and it's Leonard Nimoy. And what I love is that then that leads to, and because of that, they can now understand English perfectly. <laughs> yeah. They, they go through that really fast. <laughs> I mean, for as much as this film steals from Stargate, yeah. <laughs> uh, one thing that I legitimately liked about Stargate was the having to figure out the communication. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And that that's something I do kind of miss in just how fast everything rolls by here. Yeah, the, you mentioned Stargate. I think that's a great uh, touchstone of things, something that might have sort of inspired this. Uh, there's well, a Daniel lot... Jackson and, and Milo are the same character. Yeah. It's funny, though. If you I've heard that they sort of based Milo's look on Mark Ockrand as well. And if you mm. look at a video of him, yeah. he's got these huge round glasses. If you combined his face with like Michael J. Fox, like you can totally, mm-hmm. totally see that. There's a lot of uh, Pocahontas in this uh, oh, yeah. and sort of stealing from themselves. Some viewers pointed out the similarities between Atlantis and the 1986 Studio Ghibli film Castle in the Sky, uh, as yeah, well as the. I think uh, they're more just very light aesthetic similarities. Yeah, and also the Nadia, the Secret of Blue Water um, Ghibli animated series, but that wasn't Ghibli. That was Gainax. Oh, Gainax. But when it, when you have like when you've got Captain Nemo and the Nautilus, I think yeah. that you're just gonna in steampunk, you're gonna find con- connections uh, intended or no. Yeah, I think those are more just like we have very similar aesthetic going at, at play and we're coming from similar influences. Yeah. I mean, if you actually look at the story of this and the story of Naughty Secret of the Blue Wire, there's not that much in common. Uh, same with Laputa Castle. Really, Laputa Castle in the Sky, the only thing you get are the giant robot guardians and the glowing blue, blue crystal. You know? Right. That's about it. Whereas I, I think with stuff like Stargate, I think that's more just they're coming from the same sensibilities of how to structure a blockbuster film. If, if you're trying to construct the, again, like Journey to the Center of the Earth, it's like we're pulling a team together, we're going on exploration, we find a lot of civilization. There's, there's only so many ways you can go with that story. A lot of it just feels like the white savior narrative or I guess dry savior uh, in this case. I mean, that can play out so many ways. What's interesting is um, James Cameron's script for Avatar actually existed three years before this. Oh, interesting. So I remember reading that script like in, in like 2000. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> his original treatment leaked online. Yeah. So we, we owe it all to Fern Gully then. Yes. <laughs> all of it. Uh, oh, Fern Gully. <laughs> I think you can't dis- – you can't – there are clear influences of films yeah. like Raiders of the Lost Ark here uh, as well, uh, swapping World War One for – or World War Two for World War One. Um the, the idea of like a, a, a an academic you know who respects antiquity and other cultures, but the modern forces want to exploit it you know for their own ends. Yeah, and I'm one of those people who I don't mind if things are derivative. I don't mind if you're wearing your influences on your sleeve and people can trace like these other things that you may have seen yeah. and all that stuff as long as you do something with them. And, oh, cer- yeah, certainly. Yeah. I mean, so- with, with like with like Daniel Jackson and Milo. I do feel it's like scene by scene by scene. There's a little too much there that's similar. And I wish that they had done something a little different with Milo, you know? I mean, honestly, I would have restructured this film around the plucky young girl mechanic, but (laughs) personally, (laughs) 
go 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 extra Joss Whedon on it. Yes. <laughs> All of Mike Mignola's work is that not derivative, but is definitely like sampling the greatest hits of monster movies of mythology and yeah. recontextualizing it all in kind of a postmodern kind of tale. So yeah, I think that, I think that Atlanta's can definitely get away with uh, the sort of uh, not derivative, but uh, postmodern sort of uh, remixing of a lot of these ideas. Yeah. I mean, it's basically I, his art is even just a, a great way to describe his art is if Jack Kirby did layouts for Joe Kubert that were inked by Alex Toth. Yeah, right. You know, and and to be fair, that's what's nice is that, yeah, he's obviously wearing his influences on his sleeve, but he's presenting it in a way that nobody had ever quite seen done in that style before, you know, with the heavy shading, the blocky figures, his use of color, his use of lighting and shading, um, his his way of like freezing moments in, in a page. You know, he really does have this. And the and there's like this deceptive simplicity to his art too. I read a thing with him. He was, you know, obviously very excited to get to work on this film. And I read a thing about how um, he had seen some of the early cuts of the film and the characters had, uh, you know, the, the square Bignola finger uh, fingers. Yeah. Uh, and he's like, Oh wow. You guys went all the way with this. And they're like, we had entire classes to learn like how to do your yeah. fingers and get them on screen. I remember him talking about when he visited the studio and just going in and like seeing all these detailed breakdown guides of how to draw specific things in the Magnolia style and just being <laughs> kind of like being awed at it and freaking out. At it. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Why does everybody have a barrel chest? They're all just rectangles. <laughs> well, and that's what's interesting is that then he led to this entire wave of artists who do, you know, do that similar style, but also to kind of put their own spins on the style. I think people don't realize that, a lot of Hellboy are not actually drawn by Magnola. Yeah. He's, he still supervises them and occasionally dips in for individual storylines. But a lot of it has been him schooling this entire group of artists who kind of bring their own sensibilities to that and, and, and run with it in their own directions while also wearing, again, wearing that influence on their sleeve. Yeah. The writers of Atlantis uh, turn to the internet for story and background inspiration. It's also interesting to note that Atlantis was one of the first Disney films to be heavily promoted through internet marketing and on mm. the internet. Uh, you mentioned before being able to see uh, like videos and teasers and stuff like that. Tiny um, little QuickTime file. The, the little, yeah, uh, three, <laughs> 340 by 420 or whatever Remember it was. Remember how excited we were when the Phantom Menace trailer debuted online and we were watching like this tiny little phone-sized window? Oh, man, it's downloading. So we can watch it tomorrow. So Like 480. Yeah, like 480p <laughs> yeah. quality. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, they had a website. Actually, they did a um, promotional deal with Kellogg's, and Kellogg's Ooh. created a website uh, featuring mini games uh, based on the film. Uh, there were also cell phone games, um, probably for maybe your Nokia, and uh, the Happy Meal toys, of course, and packaging uh, for McDonald's. I'm pretty sure this is one of the few Disney animated films that's anamorphic widescreen. That's absolutely true. Um, I think one of the last ones, if not the last one, was actually The Black Cauldron in 1985. Yeah. Uh, to be an anamorphic, yeah. Well, and I'm wondering how much that might have affected viewers who have seen it since. Like, if you saw it on TV, like, in the years after it came out or rented it on video, you would have gotten the cropped version. Whereas, oh, yeah. Whereas by 2001, this was also the era where DVDs have really kicked in and widescreen was starting to become the norm to the point where TVs within a few years would start to be modeled after it. So I'm wondering if, if they're allowing themselves to do that because they know the market is going to allow for a widescreen release. 
possibly, you know, the pan and scan version of this, it's almost like a double sin because, of course, you're cutting off mm-hmm. that amazing anamorphic ratio. Uh, let's talk about the cast of yeah. the film. And I don't want to give the cast short shrift. I think they do uh, an amazing job. Uh, but it, as an animated film, there's, they have a less of a commitment, uh, on-screen commitment, as a live-action film. But, of course, this movie stars uh, Michael J. Fox as Milo. And apparently he was also offered the role in uh, Titan AE. I'm not sure if it was the main role or just a uh, general role. And he let his son choose. Uh, His son was, uh, I think, you know, in in single digits at the time. And he said, uh, Atlantis or Titan AE? And the the son picked Atlantis. So that's the one that he went with. So we could have had this movie with Matt Damon. Matt Damon in this movie. Yeah. And Michael J. Fox in Titan AE. Matt Damon versus Michael J. Fox. Man, that could have been a very different Back to the Future. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, James Garner, of course, plays Rourke in the film, and he was chosen, of course, because of his background in Westerns and adventure movies. And I think it's really weird to have Rockford be the bad guy in this one. Right. I I love the heel turn, and I love just how much he enjoys playing that. He's really chewing the scenery. And and it's worth pointing out Maverick, where he again took a heel turn in that role and then had like a whole surprise twist after that even. Right, Um, right. Where I think James Gar- it's always fun when you get the guy who's like the dependable good guy hero so consistently throughout their career and then, hey, let's make him the bad guy. Yeah, yeah. Like Henry Fonda in Once Upon a Time in the West, you know? John Mahoney plays Preston Whitmore, the uh, billionaire in this. Of course, he was, the role was originally uh, played by Lloyd Bridges, uh, who passed away um, before completing his work and before the film was uh, completed. Philip Morris, or Phil Morris, uh, played Dr. Sweet in the film. Mm-hmm. And I always wondered why Phil Morris wasn't a bigger thing. I think people yeah. remember him as, um, what's the lawyer character's name on Seinfeld? Uh, right, right. Uh, Jackie or whatever. And he's been had some other character roles, but he's so good in this. And when you think about the time that this was made, like this could have gone to a Phil Lamar or this could have gone to like another voice actor, but he's just really good in this. And I read a note that the animators were actually kind of had a problem. A lot of the uh, work that the voice actors did was was ad-libbed and Phil Morris's ad-libs were so fast and like so funny that they were like, I hope that we can keep up with the animation, like the way that he talks, the scene where he's doing the checkup and he's like, oh, I got family down that way. Oh, how are you doing? Oh, do this, do that. You like fishing? Um, they were like, they had to like sort of keep up with the speed of his delivery. That's one of the things I love most about the character is how he's just constantly bouncing and bouncing and bouncing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you've got, um, who's the guy that, uh, you've got uh, uh, the dirt guy. Oh, oh, Moliere. Moliere, yeah. Uh, I think it's Jim Cummings, but you got the actor who plays uh, Moliere. Uh, Hang on, I got, I got the Wikipedia open right here. Oh, it good. Is who is Moliere? Where is Moliere? He's so far down in the credits. <laughs> there we go, Corey Burton. Corey Burton, that's what you were it was. completely off. He's done. He's done a lot of work uh, for, yeah. for Disney as well. Yeah, Moliere is such a weird concept for a character uh that you wouldn't normally see in a disney animated film for kids. i love the bits where he'll just burrow down in a hole and then you'll just yes. hear his his chuckle of glee from within <laughs> yeah uh, and of course leonard nimoy uh plays the atlantean king who apparently doesn't get a name in the film but uh and that is um that's a pretty good get he was doing voiceover um yeah kind of frequently at this at this point 
Uh, of course, he did Transformers, the animated film that everybody oh, yeah. remembers. Yeah. Do you have Transformers, the animated movie, on your list of films to do on this show? Because I think it's worth it. Nobody has suggested it, but uh, I, I would am be suggesting open it to... right now. If you ever need me back, sometime. I would be open to <laughs> trying that on. Yeah, that's another boy, one. Boy, did that, that bomb! <laughs> yeah, that's another one that it's hard to separate your your feelings, your childhood feelings, mm. from from uh, sort of your adult critical analysis of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I should say, of course, that Jim Varney uh, plays Cookie Farnsworth in the movie. And it's one of his last roles. I think it was his last role. I believe he passed before the film came out. Yeah, as it happens in animation, you complete your oh, yeah. work sometimes years before. But yeah, it was done. And he did not get to see the film. Uh, but again, that's another that's a stock character that you wouldn't expect to see in a Disney film. And yet it works so well. And again, he got to ad lib a lot of his reactions to stuff as well. Don't worry about finishing. It'll keep. Oh, it'll keep. Yeah, have some more. <laughs> Lettuce. What, what's this? What's cilantro? One of my favorite bits in the direct video sequel, which I'm sure we'll bring up at some point, is <laughs> you can do it right where now. He, he breaks out. <laughs> now, we'll, we'll, we'll get into the whole one later, but just one bit is where he breaks it out and they go, is this the same stuff from when we had the Atlantis journey? <laughs> <laughs> sure it is. Told you to keep. <laughs> I yeah, uh, Milo's Return, uh, the sequel to uh, Atlantis: The Lost Empire. Yeah, which... I watched that for the first time in prep for this. I oh, that's it. great! I w- well, I should have watched it. I thought about it. I I know that it was sort of called together from the yeah. canceled series, right? Well, it was it was it was three episodes that were produced for a potential animated series called Team Atlantis. Okay, and it is three very distinct stories, and they just kind of did some new bridging animation, sure, and then sure. also gave it an ending where they wrap they they it, it's basically. Because it, is it Akima? Kima? Yes, Kida. Kida. Uh, Kida, by now going out on journeys on the world, decides it's time to bring Atlantis back into the world. So she raises Atlantis at the end. Um, okay. But but the three stories are literally they. Okay, so the reason why Atlantis collapsed was her father used the energies of Atlantis to wage war on the surface. Okay. And it ended up blowing back on him. But he is responsible for having wiped out entire societies himself. See, that and, is that's interesting because that is something that's totally glossed over in the film. And so this this is almost his hubris for it. Yeah, okay. I'm not sure that the film would have been made better by taking yeah. a lot of time exploring that. But yeah, we never get that in the film. Interesting. Right. And then the adventures are mostly tied around going and trying to recover Atlantean artifacts that have resurfaced. But it's also stuff like they go to a, a New England town that's shrouded in fog where there's a giant tentacle monster and everyone's <laughs> under mind control. Okay, so it's like right. pure Lovecraft. There's, sure. there's, there's one where they go to a desert where um, it's it's a story about Native Americans and colonialism, where this opportunist has been digging up all these lost relics and is selling them to make himself rich. And the Native American spirits are coming in the form of a sandstorm made of sand coyotes, like this roiling cloud of a Whoa. pack of coyotes. And it's really good. Interesting. And the third story is kind of the weakest, where it's just a crazed professor steals a, a spear and declares himself to be Odin. <laughs> Okay, so if you got like a yeah, yeah. underwater Agents of Shield thing going yeah, on, yeah. But I mean, this. like if you if you like '90s and if you like '90s adventure cartoons, it's perfectly in line with those. It it, it still captures the characters well. You get a lot more play out of the vehicles and, and everything. Yeah. A lot more breathing room to kind of like have these little twenty minute stories where every character gets to have their moment. You also get to see Kida in the surface world 
trying to adjust and adapt. Sure. And what's funny is like, you know, I mean, she, she's basically in a bikini for the entire movie in the sequel. She's wearing like a thick sweater and jeans for the entire thing. And, and it's a whole different look, but it's also just kidding. And she's the muscle of the team. Okay. It's like her and Milo are the mutual leaders of the team where he's the strategist and she's the fighter. See, just on the strength of what you've told me and that premise, yeah. why not just give it a shot? Like you can run it on yeah. the Disney afternoon or Disney channel or whatever, but I, th- I think by the time the film bombed, they were just kind of like, well, let's just cut our losses. And they had already yeah. produced content for it. And they, and were gonna, they were, like, were going to yeah. reopen the, the, the Jules Verne submarine ride as an Atlantis ride. And then that got scrapped. And now I think it's uh, the it's Finding the Nemo, Nemo. In the yeah. submarine. Yeah, yeah. And it's a shame because I, I, I wish that they had kept going with it. I think it's one of those sequels that a lot of people ignore because yeah. the, the Disney direct video sequels kind of got a bad rap. But it's one of those ones, if you look at it as several episodes of a TV show, and Disney was having a lot of great luck with their spinoff TV shows. Like the the Aladdin animated series was great. The um, I actually like the the Hercules animated series more than I do the movie. Yeah. Um, the Tars animated series was pretty good. Actually brought back a lot of Burroughs elements to it. Interesting. The uh, Buzz Lightyear animated series where they were like, let's just not do Toy Story. Let's actually do the, the he's in, in space. World. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. His space adventures are really good, <laughs> which doesn't make any sense in, then, in, the, in the world of the film unless it's it, his animated show or whatever. Yeah, exactly. It is. It is. It's the animated. It's the animated <laughs> reality that he ca- that he came from. Sure. Basically. And then the Lilo and Stitch animated series, which I think was kind of the, the end of it was what I loved about Lilo and Stitch was. The original film, the, the direct-to-video sequels, and the animated series were still all supervised by the same guy. Okay. And he actually stuck with the franchise, and he was the one who guided the stories and all that stuff. And then, once that was done, he went to DreamWorks, where he made How to Train Your Dragon. Yeah, yeah. And did all of the sequels and the entire TV series he supervised himself. Yeah, very successful. Um, but anyways, yeah, no, Team Atlantis, is, or Atlantis Milo's Return is, if you like the first movie, it's worth checking out. Well, I definitely have to check that out then. Yeah. Disney, it's so interesting because Disney is is the king or queen or just ruler of animation. And they sit atop this, uh, this kingdom, if you will, of all these different features. And then you've got this growing trend of um, anime coming into the marketplace, uh, people yep. enjoying more adult storytelling. And it's like they, they know <laughs> as they cast around for new genres to explore, for new ideas and premises... They know that they don't want to. They they know what their brand is, but they it's and it's not anime. But yet at the same time, they are taking these anime elements. They're trying to stretch out into these spaces. And again, I just wonder what would have happened if they had just gone for it and created you know Disney Teen, you know, or or Disney Disney PG basically. If they had tried to get some of that anime market share by making things uh, more adult and. This, well, I think now they, they have it in Marvel and Star Wars. Well, exactly, yeah. I, mean, I think it would have looked like this film in that animated yeah. space. When you think about what happened, we talked about all the people that die in this movie. Um, it's very violent. You've even got that scene. So you got the submarine. In every submarine movie, you have to have that scene where uh, a compartment's flooding and the yeah, person in yeah. charge has to close a door and leave somebody behind. And they have that in this movie. They have the plucky uh, young girl mechanic. <laughs> yeah, she she kills a guy. The, the child yeah. kills a guy. Everybody's smoking. Part of the climax is two of the villains trying to kill each other. Like, they yeah. basically turn on each other. And it's, I just think about, like, you know, this film... Um, just some of the animated features uh, of my youth where you would get away with these kind of more uh, adult elements, the very like adult conflicts and emotions that you get in parts of um, 
Hunchback of Notre Dame, which is one of the reasons I really yeah. like the movie. An entire film song about lust. Yeah, which is like the best song. And yeah. Tony J. Yeah, it's just awesome. If I just think of this alternate universe where we could have had that earlier. We, we're getting it now in some ways, yeah. but... Yeah, I, I'm not sure why this Disney is so um, phobic to these sort of small stumbling blocks by not making $500 million or a billion dollars on a film. Right. And I think this one was the first that just bombed so bad. Yeah. Like, it didn't even make 100 in a film that cost over 100 $102 million 20 years ago. That was a lot. Yeah. But nowadays, everything is like a $350 million tenfold. Well, so. yeah. And you mentioned, Tang I think Tangled was like $260 million. Like, yeah, it's crazy. Exactly. Well, and even like John Carter, which the only reason that that was considered such a loss was they hinged the budgets of like five, five previous attempts to film it before. Right. Um, but yeah, this is this is one of those ones where I think Disney was doing a lot of experimentation. A lot of it was. OK, so you, let's just step back and we, we kind of look at it where we had the, the first A-list period where Little Mermaid, Aladdin, Lion King, Beauty and the Beast. You know, all the, these these incredible, spectacular, wondrous things kind of coming out of the oddball experimentation that they were doing in the early 80s. Mm -hmm. And then then it starts to fumble a little bit where I mean, and not saying that they're bad movies, but they, they just didn't hold together as well. Like Pocahontas. Yeah. Yeah. Where you know, just kind of more just taste issues. Hunchback and Notre Dame. Um, I think they actually went up a little bit better with Mulan. That was that was a really solid return. But then they started to experiment. And then that was where again you got Tarzan which is like the antithesis of a Disney movie. Uh, Hercules, where it's like, now the guy's the guy is the lead character, which they haven't done in a long time. You know, Atlantis, uh, Emperor's New Groove. And then I think by the time you get through Emperor's New Groove and then Lilo and Stitch, it's that's when you know, a lot of the main talent that they had boosted up had already fled to DreamWorks. Yeah. You know, not only not only had Katzenberg gone there years before, but you know, he was suddenly promising them opportunities and stuff. And a lot of the DreamWorks animation studio studios were built up with people who came out of Disney. Yeah. And and that's I think where, you know, then they kind of suffer and had to kind of fall back on Lesser Town with like Brother Bear and Home on the Range. And and it wasn't until they kind of decided, well, let's go back and re embrace the fairy tale that they kind of boosted up and then mixing in a lot of the Pixar talents is, you know, it's kind of gotten to the point now where Pixar movies and Disney movies are getting harder and harder to tell apart. Yeah. Yeah. Also, and, you've and got, that's a good thing. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you've also got the thing where, you know, Shrek is in theaters at the same time oh, yeah. and it's killing everybody and it's a fractured fairy tale, but it's still back to fantasy. So I just think that like they, they have so much money. They have so much talent. They can run. They, they run the place. Yeah. When you experiment, you should expect that an experiment might fail. You know, so I wish that they would have a little more confidence and then not let um, that brain drain happen where they lose a lot of their talent to these other companies who are just trying right. to eat their lunch. Has Disney done a cell animated movie since the Princess and the Frog? Since the Princess and the Frog? I don't believe so. Yeah. So I think they've they've abandoned that holy except for when they need to do like a sequence for like enchanted or the new mary poppins yeah yeah um but it, i i would love to see a return to that classic disney style but try to apply it in new ways that i mean like i i think tangled and frozen are great classic disney movies and what i love about the cgi is that it's cgi that's modeled after their 2d animation in very yes. many ways yes you know the way the shots are constructed the way the characters are designed they're very much in line with that style i i Frozen is going to be very interesting because we haven't had a Disney animated franchise. 
I mean, we've had films that then had TV spinoffs or direct-to-video spinoffs, but we haven't had a theatrical Disney animated franchise. Right, right. And I'm going to be very curious to see how Frozen 2 does, and will they then be able to expand upon that? Because, I mean, really, Shrek and and How to Train Your Dragon kind of like came along and, and managed to do the <laughs> multi-film franchise. Yeah, yeah. That Disney's Which, never been able to do. Yeah. And of course, I mean, you know, they're Disney, but they must look on those and think, oh, it'd be really nice to, to be able to do something like that. Right. And it's like, I, it would have been interesting to see, like, in the 90s, early 2000s, had they taken some of those direct-to-video sequel ideas and put some more money behind it. Like, I think the one that got the most prestige was The Lion King 2. Yeah. And even then, it's just kind of a dry retread. Yeah. Whereas, you know, like, you look at the Aladdin sequels, uh, Return of Jafar, the, the King of Thieves. They had actually really good premises and that you could have made just as big of a spectacle on the original while kind of building them off in new directions. But because they're still slapping them with shoestring budgets, they're just not selling. They're never going to look the same. Yeah, exactly. You can't put them up alongside. Whereas, you know, if if we had had like a a new, like full big budget Aladdin movie every four years, see see what would happen. Yeah. But I mean, that's. You know, until now with Frozen, that just yeah. I think they decided that wasn't their brand. Like they wanted exactly. to have a new thing every every year or every other year. Uh, another something else that strikes me about this film is that to me it feels like I know that they I think that one of the things that they felt was a failure is that this just wasn't aimed at anybody. You know, it's not it's too young for old people. It's too old for young people. But to me, it felt like some of those um, those movies that you get in the eighties that were kind of kids movies but had like adult elements like a monster squad or a goonies yeah. or something like that. I thought it sort of fit in that could fit in that category. Yeah. And I, I think that's also one of the issues that I have with the film is that tonally it's kind of all over the place <laughs> Yeah, is, I mean, especially, especially when it just will like jump to like goofy style, Disney cartoon humor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I we're mean, we're like, making fun of the, of the, the slop the cookie makes. And then five minutes later, everyone is dying because the camp's on fire. Yeah, exactly. You know, and <laughs> it, it's, it's totally jarring and, and it would have been more interesting had they been able to settle into a more consistent tone yeah. Had they had more, you know, kind of tighten those scenes up and then have more breathing room for the second half of the story. Yeah, it, that, it makes the the heel turn that everybody does come on really fast. Um, right, and then I love that the face turn that the majority of the team makes happens like within five minutes of the heel turn. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, they didn't like, we didn't see them kill anybody on screen, so we're like, come back into the fold. Well, That's we fine. just saw the girl kill someone on the submarine. <laughs> <laughs> that was to save everyone else. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> the, what I want to know is, how how far is this telegraphed? You know what I mean? Like, I think that there right. is in... Um, James uh, Garner's performance, there are notes that make you think that um, everybody's there's something going on here. And then as we go through um, the scenes with the submarine and with the smaller subs, you you think that like to, to me, all the seamen seem evil. Do you know what I mean? You think that like yeah. everybody would be smiling at each other, encouraging each other. But there's all these like furtive side glances and everybody's frowning and you just get the feeling that even as the music is. Um, They're swelling, mercenaries. Yeah. yeah. You know that these are not like our good guys. Like these guys can't wait to despoil a secret continent. Yeah. And in, yeah. in, in that way, it reminds me a lot of another Indiana Jones movie, uh, The Last Crusade, where you've got the billionaire figure you know of donovan who sends them out on this thing you know your father or your ancestor wanted to do this and then of course at the end it turns out no no i just want to exploit this for myself by the way uh, speaking of last crusade let's give a quick shout out to helga oh sure claudia christian of babylon 5 voicing what is probably (laughs) 
I, I hate to say it, one of the sexiest Disney animated characters ever yeah. made, and also one you would never want to cross because she would kill you. It's so interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I think it's probably a. Uh, it a is decision. like the action adventure femme fatale. Yeah, I think it's a decision of expediency more than anything else because they wanted this sort of vampy character, but you also need this character who's the come on everybody like the action yes. hero type thing and they merge them and it's like it kind of works she can work hard she can play hard yeah and also i love how you know the, the way that disney villains have died historically is they either fall from a great height or they are engulfed in an explosion so they have one of the villains throw the other from a great height who lands fatally wounded but then fires the flare that causes the other one to die in an explosion right <laughs> while being a weird crystal guy or something yeah. But I mean, yeah, to, to be, yeah, I, I like that there is that it's not so much that it's a, a mystery, but I like that there is, yeah, it feels like there's something else going on here. Yeah. It feels like, why are all these people putting so much energy, spending so many lives just to uncover this ancient civilization? Well, it's because they want a power source and they want to get rich. Yeah, for sure. It's one of those, it's one of those twists where it's like, oh yeah, I should have seen that coming. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder, I feel like it's sort of, seated that Whitmore is kind of behind it or into it as well. Yeah. They don't carry that on in the sequel. Definitely. No. Okay. All right. And it gets lost in this film, I think too. Like when he waves goodbye to them, he's got his fingers crossed behind his back, which is a weird touch. Like generally that means like I made a promise to your, to your grandfather, but he wants to break his promise. And of course it's all mm -hmm. negated at the end. Cause they all come back and they're like, Oh no, we didn't find anything. Uh, yeah, but I kind of wonder if they were going to do something while wearing with glowing that. jewels. Yeah, right. I I kind of wonder if in the 150 uh, page treatment that uh, Murphy originally came up with, if uh, there was something addressing that. Well, um, we need to get to our segment here uh, where we check on the state of the robot holocaust. Uh, I have a theory that you can tell within 30 seconds generally, maybe a few minutes, if the film you're watching is going to be a bad film. Uh, if the film opens with uh, excessive VO, uh, overly long title cards, or if the film opens over water. You know this this helicopter shot where we're seeing the Hey, water. Lost Boys open that way. <laughs> Careful. Uh, or, you know, a, a previous guest on the show uh, suggested um, if you have on-the-nose musical choices or if we see the main character in the first scene, those are indicators as well that maybe this movie's not going to be so good. And um, I think this film subverts that a lot by going just enough into these areas and then pulling back out. Uh, we do have a title card. But it's a very mm -hmm. simple title card that sets up the idea of Plato's idea of Atlantis. It opens literally over water, but it's about Atlantis. So what are you mm -hmm. going to do? That's a push. And you do see the main character in the opening. But of course, there was a very specific story reason that that was done to help us relate better to this character that we'll meet later. So mm -hmm. I think as far as the state of the robot holocaust goes, I don't think robots are the problem. We've got a real ass geologic apocalypse happening and robots actually save the day at the end. So I think this one yeah. gets a pass. By the way, I, I love the design of the robots. They, they they do have that castle in the sky look, but they're very Mike Mignola. Yeah, there's a little iron giant in there, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But Proto, and that was, yeah, that was 99, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it was at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I got to say, though, when we, when they get to that hall of the crystal with the giant faces swirling around it. Yeah. 
from that point on, the film is just they they finally get me fully hooked and just is. <laughs> I mean, again, like that that whole minutes long sequence of of Kida being pulled into the crystals and imbued with the power and coming back down and glowing and that that whole shot of her walking across the water as those giant stone faces drop from the sky one after yeah. the other. Yeah. And then she steps out and triggers the robots and then they all come out and they do their thing. Yeah. Like that is just a breathtaking sequence. And. Fairly original, as far as I can tell. I couldn't yeah. think of of all the influencers we've talked about. I don't. I can't think of anything that would have inspired that. Well, I mean, and that's that. That has a very Mignola quality. That also has like a yeah, very yeah, like yeah. Euro- European comic quality to it, like something you'd see in a heavy metal mags. Yeah, totally. Yeah, um, very Mobius. Mobius. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah. Yeah, but then even just that whole climax where it's like they're rallying everyone on the flying craft, and it's that whole fight around the vertical dirigible where it's just this one long thin balloon, yeah. you know, as, as just explosions and gunfight. It, it's a dog fight that you've never seen in a Disney film before. Certainly. Uh, that leads to uh, probably the death of everybody else who's not named yes, in the film. Yes, exactly. I love how uh, they bring all these people along, you know, some sailors, some other people, and a lot of them die, but there's still about... Mm, about two dozen stormtroopers that are <laughs> left still alive. And, I, mean, I, uh, do, I, I do love the tone change that the stormtroopers bring in when they finally break out their yeah. crates of guns. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. As you just think Milo would look around and go, there's a bunch of like uh, stormtrooper guys in like hell gassed masks. Uh, I don't, am I on the right side here? Are we the baddies? Are we the baddies? <laughs> now let's go to our segment called Pick of the Patch, where we look mm. at contemporary reviews from the time. Uh, sometimes on the show, we run into the phenomenon where a film was, you know, poorly received at its release, but with the benefit of history, it tends to be seen as classic, and it gets a very high score on Rotten Tomatoes because of that, thanks to contemporary internet reviews mm-hmm. giving it praise. Uh, Alien is an example. We covered that on the show previously. Mixed, at the time, uh, opinion, but now, of course, you know, the best movie ever. Uh, this film, however, was released really at the dawn of internet commentary, so I think we get a fairly accurate picture of what critics at the time thought of it. There have been some critics who have revisited it, and they're generally positive about it, but without those modern takes, it might have had a worse rating than 49. People did not really like this at the time. And it's weird. You know, I was talking about internet commenters and YouTube uh, video makers going back and revisiting old things. There are not a ton of Atlantis videos on YouTube. Um, no. A lot of the major people that you would think of, like Lindsay Ellis hasn't made an, an Atlantis video as far as I can find. Yeah, it's it's one of those ones where it kind of slipped right under the radar. Yeah. Everyone remembers it, but nobody really ever brings it up again. Yeah, right, right. Uh, which is strange because I, th- yeah, I mean, I think it presaged a lot of the uh, cool things and developments that you would see in uh, animated films in the next decade and in the, in the new century. I mean, you'd think, especially with the rise of the Hellboy films, there would be a lot more people oh, yeah. just trying to, because a lot of people then re-examined Blade 2, which which Del Toro did with Mignola as his chief designer, right. with them experimenting with a lot of stuff they would do in Hellboy. And you don't see a whole lot of revisiting of this from the people who are into the Hellboy movies. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand it. Um, but... Owen Gleiberman said in 2001, he's, of course, uh, one of the reviewers for Entertainment Weekly at the time, he gave it a C plus and he said that it is the essence of craft without dream, Hmm. which I would not agree with, um, but that's what he thinks. Ed Gonzalez of Slant Magazine gave it a two out of four, which 
They do a f- scale of four. It's Lamp Magazine, whatever. Uh, they, he said that this dopey piece of fantastical folklore takes a long time to get to its awe-inspiring ending, which um, I don't disagree with necessarily. Uh, I don't know how dopey it is, though. I don't think it takes a long time. I think it goes too quick. <laughs> well, it's 95 minutes, which is not yeah. shabby for uh, an animated feature at that time. But yeah, it definitely could have been longer. Uh, Lou Luminick of the New York Post said, it's so oppressively tedious at times that you almost wish the cast would break into a chorus of Under the Sea. And he gave it a 2.5 out of 4. I would like to see Vinny and Moliere doing Under the Sea, but <laughs> otherwise, yeah. Yeah. It's like under the sea, you know. We get a get a crab there. We get a little shellfish, you know. Hey, yeah. yeah, What else can you do under the sea? (laughs) Uh, All the reviews weren't negative, however. Uh, Wesley Morris, uh, who I believe was uh, writing for the San Francisco Chronicle at that time, gave it a three out of four. He said, "Just beneath the surface, Atlantis brims with adult possibility." which is something that I definitely agree with. And Mark Caro of the Chicago Tribune said it was mostly a well-told, vividly imagined movie that doesn't pretend to be more than it is and doesn't lean on pop culture references to win over its viewers. Yeah. In the Disney tradition, you definitely could have found a way to make a talk to the hand joke or something like that uh, in 1914, but they showed restraint and didn't do that. And of course, uh, godfather of critics everywhere, Roger Ebert, gave it 3.5 out of four stars, saying what Atlantis does is show a willingness to experiment with the anime tradition, maybe to appeal to teenage action fans who might otherwise avoid an animated film. It's like 20,000 leagues under the sea set free by animation to look the way it dreamed of looking. Yes, definitely agree with that one. So now I just want to see uh, Disney do uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea again. Well, they've been trying to for about 15 years. I've got like four drafts of it. Uh, As live action? Well, yeah, David Fincher has been trying to do that one for a long time. Oh, yeah, okay. I think I heard about that. And it keeps getting axed, yeah. Yeah. Boy, that that would be interesting. That'd be another experiment for sure. Well, part of it is he wants to make it a very character-driven study of Captain Nemo and all stuff. And (laughs) Disney, Disney wants Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, of course. Oh God, Johnny Depp as Captain Nemo. Please, God, no. Mm. Who is that? Who's the 21st century uh, James Mason? Ooh, that's a good question. Ooh, Jonathan Harris? I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Could we get this done in time for uh, Anthony Hopkins to be you Give uh, him another 10 years, it. it'll be Tom Hiddleston. Tom, Tom Hiddleston. <laughs> Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah, well, yeah. OK, that's my vote. I want to see that then. Well, I mean, you'd probably want to explore Captain Nemo as, you know, the ethnic Indian uh, railing against the British, yeah, British sure, colonialism. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. As a Sikh. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Do a Bollywood co-production or something like that. So, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, legitimately, because they're throwing money into gigantic movies now. That's true. So it's like do it a co-production, bring in an international cast. You get one dance sequence and we'll do it. Yeah. Uh, why do you think that critics of the time rejected this? I mean, we've talked about some of the problems that the movie had, how it missed uh, in tone necessarily. But like, why do you think you know how it is with critics? Like you are giving your opinion, but you're also trying to answer a trend that you see. And why do you think people said, nah, not 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 this? I think the biggest problem is it just doesn't have a central anchor point in terms of, of a character or relationship to follow. I don't think Milo is the most interesting character. Mm. And. Kita comes into the story so late that their relationship never feels like it authentically develops. Interesting. And I think that's the thing is it's, it's carrying, it's, it's not carrying you through. Right. And that's where I think if you had kind of refocused, try not to put in the romance or build the remote romance earlier in the story. Yeah. Again, if you had, 
if you had framed it around uh, the mechanic, who what was her name? Audrey or yes. What was her name? Yeah. Audrey. Yeah. The mechanic, you know, and you made it like a little sister, big sister type of relationship that builds between hmm. her and Keith. Interesting. And, and that I think would be a much more refreshing thing instead of trying to have a romance that would just be, again, something you don't, you don't see like how Emperor's new groove was a buddy comedy in a <laughs> Disney movie that right, didn't yeah. have romance, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. And I think there's ways that they could have played with it without being quite as formulaic. I think had they restructured the opening, so it's not so many levels before you get to Atlantis, just pick a few of those and expand on them more, uh, get the tone settled. And then once you get to Atlantis, have a little more breathing room for the characters and relationships to settle in. I think it's, it, it ultimately just comes down to story structure, you know, and I, I think it's one of those films where it just, it kind of jolts from moment to moment. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. A collection of scenes instead of a, a more of a narrative. It's funny because like, I don't think of Milo as like the worst Disney protagonist ever. He's and, not. He's not. He's just kind of bland. But he's I think not, you're too. Yeah. And they're, they're not grabbed by him. Yeah, exactly. And they're working so hard. I mean, first of all, 50% of the work is casting Michael J. Fox, but they've got all these. He, there's so much dialogue from him and there's so many character moments and they do the thing like, oh, I can fix a boiler and uh, I swim pretty girl. And they have all these little moments that are intended to draw you in. But yeah, you, you just kind of slide over him. There's nothing to really grab onto. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things where, you know, like they were even talking about how you like, we had this entire character that we cut out where he's like a stage magician hypnotist. And it's like, oh, I'm, yeah, good. That didn't really have anything to do with the story. I know. I saw that in the uh, in the uh, yeah. character designs. And I was like, oh, thank God they cut that guy. I mean, even then, I love Cookie. You could have cut Cookie. Yeah, you probably could have cut Cookie. You, you could have cut Cookie. You could have merged him with the old lady on the radio. <laughs> Um, <laughs> the best. She yeah. she's great, but I mean, like I I love Vinny, I love Moliere, I love Audrey, I love Doctor Sweet. Would, I, yeah, I, yeah. That's a great core group of characters, I think. But and they're again, they're a great they setup really to do much. Though, yeah, you know, they're a great setup for the animated series. Yeah, yeah, and I think the animated series worked because now you have everyone established, so you can have these storylines that you can throw them into and see all their interplay off of each other, which helps build them as characters. Yeah. And I, I, I wish it, it had been in this film that the revelation that Kida's father had caused the calamity in his attempt to basically conquer the world. Right. And and how it's not so much that he keeps Atlantis hidden to keep it safe, but so much so that he doesn't have to face the world outside that he almost destroyed once. Which yeah. is, yeah, that's rough. And it's a, it's a great, we were talking at the beginning of the show about sequels that are better than the originals. That's a great thing where you take the premise from the first yeah. one and you find a way to, to twist it and change the context of everything. Well, I'd, I'd be curious if that was something that was added or if it was something that was cut from the first, you know? Yeah. Probably cut because, yeah. yeah, like we said, the original draft was, was huge. So Disney yeah. uh, experimented, but maybe could have experimented a little more and got people's attention. Yeah. And, and what's weird, well, I also think Tad Murphy's not the sharpest screenwriter to have hinged it all on. Yeah. Um, he's no Linda Wolverton. He's not Joss Whedon. He's not so much. I mean, so they had so many great screenwriters leading up to this. I mean, like, um, oh, T Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio, all, all these great writers. And this one just kind of, how did Tad Murphy get on this? <laughs> well, he was part yeah. of the the uh, Beauty and the Beast and Hunchback gang. He, he, did, he didn't do Beauty and the Beast, but he did Hunchback. <laughs> he wanted to keep that band together. What's fun, though, is is they did publish a book. It's an art book, which has like all the this art design, all that stuff, including a lot of Mignola's original work yeah. and the screenplay. But 
it's an abridged screenplay. So it's like the screenplay, you're not only not reading all of what's in the film, but you don't get to see all this expansive stuff that was cut out. I wish that they had, I wish that they had published the full script. Yeah. That's, that's why, that's why you get something like that. So you can see the whole thing. Especially because I think it's the only Disney film where they've ever published the screenplay in an art book. (laughs) Release the Murphy cut. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. Yeah. Let's start that hashtag. Uh, Well, as we get to the end here, what's your final recommendation? Would you say it's a masterpiece or a disaster piece? I mean, it's literally a disaster piece, but uh, good or bad. Well, again, how online discourse has devolved into you know, one <laughs> way or the you other. to go up or down. It's a nuanced area in the middle where it, I enjoy the film. I, I enjoy it. It's not one of those films that I go and seek out and revisit regularly. Yeah. But when I do, I enjoy more of it than I don't. I think it has legitimate problems, but it has a lot of really interesting stuff to offer. Like even a lot of the adventure stuff in the beginning, it's really well staged and well designed and really fun. And it's it, it, it has enough hits to make up for the misses. Yeah. And again, if you're intrigued by Mike Mignola and the Hellboy films, all stuff, this is a really great companion piece to those. Yeah. I really enjoyed watching it uh, again for this. I don't know if I'd watch it again soon in the future, but it's, it's one of those films that I wish it was on YouTube more. Cause there are definitely scenes yeah. that I think I would go to YouTube and watch to see those scenes. I'm I'm surprised that this one isn't like grabbed by the you know the the AMV communities that do like the the let's cut a cut our favorite scenes from a movie that we like to pop songs mm-hmm. yeah, yeah mostly mostly in the anime community but you know that's kind of bled over into a lot of other stuff it's like I'm surprised that we don't have more that like that for this yeah I could see that happening. Well, uh, that is it for this edition. Thanks for joining us, listeners. If you want to let us know how you feel about this movie, you can tell us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash craft services. You can also find us on Twitter at craft disservice, no S. We're also on iTunes and all those places. Search for us, subscribe, like, rate, and review. Thank you. Noel, where can people find you online? Uh, Go to my central website, noelct.blogspot.com. That links to all my various podcasts. What anything coming up you want to tell us about? Uh, well, again, we just recorded our Time to Kill episode of Shumacast, and our next one to come out is going to be Falling Down. Oh, which yeah. that was that was a very interesting one over at Masters of Carpentry, where we we've already done our main show going through all of John Carpenter. We're kind of just filling in odds and ends. Okay. Uh, I, I'm just halfway through editing Rob Zombie's Halloween Two. <laughs> Boy, <laughs> yeah, okay. that's that's a jump. Yeah. That's a jump. And then over at uh, Gray Stoked, our, our podcast going through the history of Tarzan films, we have just recorded, I'm waiting for my co-host to finish up the editing on the last of the Johnny Weissmuller Tarzan movies, his 18 Tarzan movies. And you're going to go all the way through to Casper Van Dien? Well, we've technically already gone through a third of the Tarzan movies just because they made so freaking many in the 30s and the 40s. Yeah, yeah, right, right. So might as well keep going. Yeah. All right. Well, listeners, stay tuned for that. And that's it. The credits are rolling. This is Aaron for Noel saying that's all, folks. 